Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. There were two brothers who lived in the same household. It was an older brother and a younger brother. Uh, the older brother was a good boy. He behaved, did what was right, never got in trouble. Uh, the younger brother was a little different. He tended to be a bit of a rebel, didn't always listen to what dad had to say, a little bit wild and decided at some point that what he would do is just take the inheritance that he had coming to him to request that from his father and to leave home and go out and live however he wanted to. And so his dad granted that to him and off he went. And he lived a wild life, hung out with prostitutes, squandered all of his inheritance, and finally got to the point where he realized that this was not a good way to live. He was convicted, he was humbled, and he thought to himself, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to plead with my dad for mercy and see if he'll welcome me back into the family. So the younger brother goes back home, and as he's going back home, he sees that his father is actually running out to meet him with open arms of mercy and grace, welcoming him back into the family. And the older brother is observing this. The older brother watches this younger brother come back, and the older brother goes to his father, and he's upset about this, and he starts to complain, and he says, Dad, I've been obeying you all my life. I've always been following the rules. I've never, been got, I've never gotten into any kind of trouble like the younger brother. And yet when he comes home, you're celebrating, you're throwing a party, you're giving him all this attention. I've never got attention like that. You've never thrown me a party. You've never recognized my obedience. You've never been excited about all that I've done. And the father responds and says, Son, your brother was lost and now he's found. We have got to celebrate and rejoice in this good news. Now, most of you know what I've just told there. That's a commonly known parable in the Bible from Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And a very common interpretation of that parable is this idea that anybody who goes off and squanders his inheritance and lives wildly can always return to his heavenly Father and call on him for mercy and be received with grace and kindness. And that is certainly a proper interpretation of that parable. But there's another interpretation of that parable that focuses more on the attitude of that older son. The older son who was frustrated about not getting any attention and about all of the celebration going on about the return of the younger son. Another interpretation of this parable is that it is actually a confrontation of a self-righteous, prideful attitude among those who are very proud and self-satisfied in all of their obedience and all of their goodness and all the obedience that they have rendered to God and to their Father, that what that parable is really intended to do is confront those kinds of people. The parable confronts the judgmental attitude of the typical religious person. And I think that's a very legitimate interpretation 
of that particular parable. Now, we get to Romans 2 here this morning. We are going through the book of Romans here at New Life, the greatest letter ever written, and we're considering this one passage at a time. And as we get to Romans chapter 2, what we're going to see here in these first 11 verses is basically the theology behind that parable of the prodigal son. What we learn in story form through the parable, we learn in theological form here in Romans chapter 2. Except the main characters are not an older and a younger brother, but in Romans 2 the characters are Jew and Gentile. And so we see these two major categories being set up. The younger brother who's kind of this self-righteous person upset about um, or the, the older brother who's uh, upset about the younger brother and his lifestyle. We have the Jewish person who is the obedient religious person all of his life and holding Gentiles in contempt. And we have religious people who are always obedient, always doing the right thing, and looking with contempt at those who aren't as religious as them. That, that, that's, that's what Paul is moving into in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he's been confronting the Gentiles. He's been pointing out the many sins that Gentiles commit. And now as we get to chapter 2, what Paul basically does is pour a great big bucket of cold water on the head of the religious person who is standing there observing God, reading chapter 1, and saying, yeah, God, good, go get those non-religious, atheistic, Gentile people. Get them, God. And what Paul is doing here is setting them up so that now in chapter 2, he can expose them for their own inadequacies. So what we're going to hear about here today is God's judgment on the religious. God's judgment on the religious. And this is exposed in verses 1 through 11. So if you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It reads like this. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God in heaven, we ask, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's kind of surprising what Paul seems to be doing here, offering this 
stinging rebuke and challenge to religious people. Now, maybe that sounds to you a little bit odd because generally we think of religious people as the ones who, again, are doing the right things. They're the ones who are going to church. They're the ones who are very concerned about obedience. They're the ones who are trying to stay out of trouble. And yet Paul is really hard on these kinds of people in these passages. So why is that? The reason he's doing this is because he wants to expose the need that every single individual in the world has for Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what Paul is doing here. He's done that very well in chapter 1. We've gone through that in three or four sermons. And he's laid out the case against the Gentiles. And now he's saying, you know what? It's not just the non-religious. It's not just the Gentiles. It's not just the younger brothers who need Jesus. It's the religious people too. And he makes this case by showing three reasons why the religious among us need a Savior. The first one is this. Religious people can't even live up to their own standard, Paul says. Look at verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, what Paul is saying here is that when the religious person passes judgment on somebody else, what he or she doesn't see is that he or she is guilty of doing the very things that he is holding others accountable to do. And this happens very often in our lives, doesn't it? That we just tend to very quickly hold people to a certain standard that we don't always apply to ourselves. I mean, don't we do this in, in a number of ways with others? particularly those who are closest to us, particular, uh, particularly with uh, mother, uh, spouses, husbands and wives and, and, and children, those closest to us, we're, we can tend to be very critical, can't we? And very impatient with their foibles. But with ourselves, we're, we're very lenient. We're, we're very gracious. Uh, with others, we, we seem to have very clear sight about what their problems are and what their issues are. But with us, there's a kind of a, a blindness there. You know, it's not quite so clear. It's it's so much more complicated when we're looking at ourselves. With others, we have very high expectations, but with ourselves, those expectations are brought comfortably low. That's what Paul is talking about here in the first verse, and this is the very essence of judgmentalism. It's like what John Flavel says, the Puritan, it is easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. And one of the reasons why that's true is because the thousand sins of others are so clear in our mind. We recognize them so readily, but even one sin in ourselves can be so hard to figure out. This is the essence of judgmentalism. It's not that we should never make a moral judgment. It's this attitude that others are worthy of judgment, but I am not. Others should be held accountable for all their mistakes, but I shouldn't. Others are probably going to get into trouble with God one day, but because I'm such a religious good person, I won't. And you see, Paul even mentions this again in verse 3. He kind of repeats what he said in verse 1. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourselves. And see, this is the issue, and it seems to be a certain kind of 
blindness, really. I'm not sure that those who judge others and do them themselves realize what they're doing. It's part of the sin condition that we have a certain kind of blindness to the ways in which we can't even live up to our own standards. I mean, for instance, it'd be very easy to look at somebody guilty of murder and just hold that person in contempt and be very condescending and self-righteous about those who would commit such a crime, and yet at the same time to have a heart that is filled with hostility and anger and hatred against people, maybe even in your own household. And what Jesus says is that those are basically the same thing. That in that case, the sins of your heart that you've committed in hatred are just simply sins that your hands have yet to commit. Or the sin of adultery, for instance. It's easy to look at those who maybe have committed adultery and we hold them in contempt. The religious person in particular can't understand how that could ever happen, and yet that same person's heart is filled with lust for men, women who are not their spouse. And Jesus says those are basically the same thing. Your heart has committed a sin that your feet have yet to walk yourself into. And this is what Paul has in mind. The religious person so, so proud, holding in contempt those not as good as he is, those with a very critical, fault-finding spirit, never pleased, nothing's ever good enough, everybody else always failing their expectations. That's the judgmentalism of the religious that Paul has in mind here in these first few verses. Now let me clarify something because I think this is important to mention. Um, <clears throat> on May 24th I preached a message on Romans 1, 24-32 called How God's Wrath is Revealed and spent some time in that message talking about the issue of homosexuality because it's included in that passage. And um, you know, i got to say that, that I received more comments about that message than any sermon I've preached in the ten and a half years that I've been pastor here at New Life. Uh, obviously, it's a very controversial issue in our culture, obviously something that uh, many of you have been thinking about. If you didn't hear that message, you can go to our website and listen to that. Go to the New Life website. Uh, I don't think the sermons are listed by date, but if you look for the sermon on Romans 1, 24 to 32, you can hear that. But what some people will say, looking at what Paul is saying here in chapter 2, where Paul says, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges, some people will say, you see, what Paul is really saying is, we can't really make a judgment on homosexual activity. This is what Paul is really doing. He's just saying, you know, we're all guilty of various sins, and so we should all just keep our mouths shut when it comes to this particular sin. Isn't it clear? That's what Paul is saying here in chapter 2. And I think that that is a wrong interpretation. I think that would be an improper way to look at this text. I don't think that's what Paul would say. I mean, Paul spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 1 listing a number of sins that are all worthy of the wrath of God, and he gave special attention to the sin of homosexuality. He, he, he singled that out and highlighted it in that passage. But notice also at the very end of the chapter, if you look at verse 32, at the end of the chapter, he says, though they know God's decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. 
What Paul is doing here is he's lumping in with all of those who practice those sins, also those who approve of those sins, even if they don't practice them. And so it's pretty clear here that Paul is not indicating or not suggesting that there's never an occasion when we can make a moral judgment on a sin such as homosexuality, homosexual activity, to be more specific. Uh, Look at verse 4, too. I think this is relevant to this question. Paul says this, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? See, this is what a lot of people will say. God is kind. God is patient. Um, God is loving. He would never require me to do something different than what I really want. He would never hold me back from fulfilling my desires. God is a loving God. But what is the purpose, in verse 4, of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? What does he say? Is it so that we can sin without impunity, so that we can have license to do whatever we want? No. It says, we're not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the purpose of God's patience. That's the purpose of His kindness. Not to give you a free pass to do whatever you want, but to repent from the sins that you're committing. And that would apply to homosexual activity as well. One other thing here, if you look at what uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, um, he says something here very similar to what Paul is saying in Romans 2. He says, judge not that you be not judged. So many people grab that first phrase and they say, you see, we can't say that anything is wrong. We cannot pronounce judgment on homosexual activity. But notice how Jesus goes on. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's the same principle we're looking at here, living up to the judgments that we use on others. But then Jesus goes on and he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Take the log out of your own eye. Repent of your own sin. Deal with your own issues. And then you'll be in a position where you can make moral judgments and even confront people who are in unrepentant sin. That's what he means when he says to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 1 here in chapter 7 needs to be read along with verse 5. So the Bible does not prohibit the making of moral judgments. We are called to do that. We shouldn't be cowardly in pulling back from making moral judgments in accordance with what the Bible says is right and wrong. And yet at the same time, what Paul is doing is offering a caution here, particularly to the religious, self-satisfied, self-righteous, hypercritical, fault-finding person And what Paul is saying here is that you got to remember, friends, you can't even live up to your own standard. You can't even do the things you're asking others to do. If there were a tape recorder hung around your neck your whole life recording everything that you said in all of your life, and you came to the final day, to judgment day, all God would have to do is take that tape recorder off your neck and play, play, press play, and sit back and watch you squirm. And all the judgments that you've made and all of the expectations you've had of other people, the judgment that you have been using all your life is one that you will be found wanting. 
And that's what Paul is saying. It's a humbling thing. And again, what Paul is saying here is that there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. There is no difference between the religious person and the non-religious person. There is no difference between the older brother and the younger brother. Everybody needs a Savior. Everybody. So Paul goes on. And he makes another point. Not only can religious people not live up to their own standard, but religious people will not escape God's judgment. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you who have this hypercritical attitude, you religious person, do you suppose that you're going to escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer that Paul is looking for there is no. It doesn't matter how religious you've been your whole life. It doesn't mean you're going to escape the judgment of God. This is the reasoning of the self-righteous religious person. That person might say something like this, you know, I'm going to escape judgment. I'm not going to have to give an account for the things that I've done and the things that I've said. Why? Well, because I was baptized. Because I'm a member of a church. Because I have Christian parents. Because I live in a Christian nation. Because there was a time 22 years ago when someone told me to say these words called the sinner's prayer, and I said them. And there was a time I, I, I even went down the altar uh, once, answered an altar call, and I, I walked forward. And that was, it took me a lot, you know, it took a lot of strength and courage for me, but I did it. I did all these religious things. So I'm not going to have to face the judgment of God. I'm, I'm, I'm off the hook. I've done these things. And, and so for this person, we might ask, well, who is going to face the judgment of God? And what would the answer be? Well, all the bad people, all the people who are not so religious, all, all the Gentiles, all, all the people who don't go to church, all the people who haven't done all these things that I've done, they'll face God's judgment, but, but not me. Do you remember that parable in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Remember that? The Pharisee is standing there praying to God, and what does he say? He says, oh, I thank you, I'm not like other men. I'm not like those non-religious people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector next to me. I'm not like them. I'm a good person, he's thinking. What makes me good? I do these religious things. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, there aren't many people here probably who fast twice a, twice a week. This is a very religious person, this Pharisee. And then the story turns to the tax collector, and here's all he has to say. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he has to say. Just like we sang a little while ago, God, be merciful to me. And Jesus goes on, he says, do you know which of these two went home justified? It wasn't the religious person. It was the tax collector who cried out for God's mercy. Why would he look for God's mercy? Because he knew he was going to face judgment. 
So he was calling out for the grace of God. You know that I talk a lot about a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite writers and preachers. He preached in London in uh, the 1900s. There's a new documentary out about Martin Lloyd-Jones called Logic on Fire, and it's very good. I would recommend it to you, a couple hours on the life and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, in the biography written about him, there's a story about his wife. His wife's name was Bethan Lloyd-Jones. And Bethan tells this story earlier in their marriage. She was a woman who attended church all of her life. She even went to all the prayer meetings. Um, she lived a very upright life. That's how she described it. She thought that she was a Christian. But, but here, this gives a peek into her thinking. And this is a quote from what she said. She said, I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute in order to be converted. I thought you had to be a, a really a bad person to be converted. She was thinking, I'm not a drunkard, I'm not a prostitute, I'm a religious person, I've lived a good life, therefore I don't need to be converted. And then she started sitting under the preaching of her own husband. And Martin Lloyd-Jones would say stuff like this, there is no more terrible instance of ungodliness than the case of a person who does not see any need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They cannot see why Christ had to die because they think that as they are, they can satisfy God. And when Bethan heard Lloyd-Jones preaching like that, she said she was frightened. She was made very uncomfortable and began to consider that maybe she's not even a Christian. And she came to see that the blood of Jesus was shed for her and for her sins. And she came to see that all of her sins could be washed away. And she said, I found release and I was so happy. Finally, she was released from her own religious self-righteousness and became a Christian under the preaching of her husband. Friends, do you know that there's a very real possibility that you could be one who has performed very many religious activities all your life, and yet you're still not a Christian. Have, have you ever considered that that is a very real possibility? You've been doing everything right. You've been at all the prayer meetings. You're here on Sunday every morning. You might even be a deacon or an elder. You might be a pastor. And you might not be a Christian. Because it's possible to fill your life with religious activity and never come to realize your need for a Savior, your need for the blood of Jesus. What Paul does here in verse 5, look, he's talking to the religious person, the person who's done all these good things, the person who has everything in line. And what he says to this person is, it's because of your hard and impenitent heart that you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That is the future for the righteous, religious person who sees no need for Jesus in his or her life. You know, friends, it would be no shameful thing for you to come to an elder or to a pastor at this church after this service and to say, I have been trying so hard to be a religious person, but you know what? I don't think I'm a Christian. Can you help me know what it is to be a Christian?
There's no shame in that. And if you need to do that, I hope that you will, even today. Religious people can't live up to their own standard. They will not escape God's judgment. And then there's one more thing that Paul says. Religious people will be judged by their own works. Religious people will be judged by their own works. Look at verse 6. Paul says, God will render to each one, to each person, according to his works. It couldn't be more clearly articulated. Um, this is on the day of wrath, verse 5, that Paul is talking about. On that day of wrath, that is the final day, on judgment day, God is going to render to each person according to his works. And I think Paul has the religious person in mind, actually. I mean, although everybody's going to have to give an account for his or her works, that's said in other places in Scripture, but I think Paul has in particular the religious person in mind because he says there at verse 9, he talks about tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. What does that mean? The Jew first and also the Greek. The Jew, again, is the religious person. And what Paul is saying is that the religious person are gonna, religious people are going to be first in line on Judgment Day because they're the ones who have enjoyed all kinds of benefits and advantages throughout their lives. These are the people who have been hearing the gospel preached. These are the people who have Bibles in their homes. These are the people who have been taught how to pray. With great privilege comes great responsibility. That's the point Paul is making. The Jew first is going to be the one, the religious person who's going to be examined according to his works. I've got to tell you, this is a verse that really sends chills down my spine as a pastor because I realize that I have received advantages in my life that are more generous than the huge majority of people who have ever lived in the history of the world. Having been brought up in a country where the gospel is preached, having, been, having heard countless sermons in churches, having been to seminary and having heard instruction at the seminary level that is far beyond what 98% of the world gets to hear. You know, the one who's going to be held accountable for his works is me. It's a humbling thing to consider. And I would place it back in your lap as well. How many sermons have you heard? How many Bibles do you have in your house? How many Christians have you known? Those are all God's way of giving you advantage You've been privileged. And what Paul is saying here is that day is going to come when you're going to stand before your maker and what's going to be examined are your works, your deeds, the way you've lived your life. Now, I, I know what a lot of you are saying. Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought we were saved by grace. I thought we were saved through faith. And yeah, that's true. We, we are. We are justified by faith, and Paul is going to go into some detail explaining that in coming chapters, so we'll, we'll get there. We are justified through faith in Christ alone, 
by grace alone to the glory of God alone. The only way to be accepted before God is placing faith in what Jesus did, not in what you have done, so that you can know that you are justified, pronounced not guilty before God's law. That's absolutely true. Justified by faith. But at the same time, the scriptures teach very clearly that we'll be judged by works. There's a difference there. Our works don't purchase our salvation. Our works don't justify us. But our works will be examined on the final day to determine if the faith that we have professed to have is actually the real deal or not. That's the purpose of the examination of the works. The presence of good works in your life will indicate the presence of sincere faith. The absence of good works in your life will indicate the absence of true saving faith. That's, that's the purpose of the judgment. Be like a tree. You know, if you see a fruit tree, how do you know if a fruit tree is alive? You ask if it has fruit on it. If there's fruit on the tree, you say that tree is alive. If there's no fruit, that tree is dead. And if there is fruit on that tree, no one would say that the fruit is giving life to the tree. It's the life of the tree that bears the fruit. And if you're a Christian, that means you're spiritually alive. God has begun a work in you, and by His grace, He is changing you and causing fruit to be born. It's something that God is doing. Really, it's not something that you're doing, but it's something that He's doing. But on Judgment Day, those works will give vindication to your profession of faith. That's what Paul is saying here. Um, don't be confused about this, okay? It's, it's a fine distinction to make. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Very important to remember. But there does come a time when you're going to have to give an account for the way you've lived your life. So what, what do these um, good works look like? In verse 7 and 8, Paul explains this to us. Verse 7, he says, talks about those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Those are the ones who will get eternal life. To those who by patience and well-doing, that is those who, who persevere, that those who don't just spring up and say, yeah, I'm a Christian because it happened to sound good on one day, but then a year or five years later they just fall away and they have no interest whatsoever. No, it's those who by patience persevere and continue in the faith. Those who are seeking for glory, those who are interested in the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the person who is thinking, mindful all the time of how his or her life is bringing glory to God. It's first priority. We forget that, yes. We allow our own glory to obscure that, but generally speaking, there's a pattern in our lives where the glory of God is central to all of our goals and desires. And not only seeking glory and honor, but immortality as well. Life after death eternal life. These are people who live with eternity in mind. They're not just thinking about what they can get in this life right now, but they're looking ahead to the end and the beginning of being ushered into the next age and uh, living eternal life with Christ and all of His people. That that is part of your mindset. You're thinking about eternal things, and your decisions are guided by that. What Paul is saying is it's those with that kind of mindset, that's an evidence of true saving faith. 
perseverance, glory of God, eternal life. I mean, is that, are, are those things of an interest to you in your life? Do those things drive you in any way, to any degree? I mean, if you have no interest in the glory of God, you're, you have no interest in persevering, and you never think about the eternal age to come, I mean, you just have to question whether you're a Christian. You just have to do that. But he, he goes on in verse 8, and he says, now here are the evidences of the person who will not receive eternal life. For this person, there's going to be wrath and fury in verse 8. Those who are self-seeking. Those for whom the only thing that's really of any interest to them ever is what is of interest to them. They never deny themselves for anything or anybody. They never sacrifice themselves for anything or anybody. It's always about them. It's always about preserving their comfort. It's always about getting what they want. They're self-seekers. And those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, those, those who just have no interest in biblical truth, they're not teachable. They're going to come up with their own ideas about what's right and wrong. They don't need the Scriptures, always challenging the Scriptures, always resisting the Scriptures, never with any interest in submitting one's life to the authority of Scripture, the truth of God as revealed in the Bible. Is that kind of attitude in a person is evidence that there's no true saving faith there. And for that person, what will there be? Verse 9, tribulation and distress. The end of verse 8, wrath and fury. That's the future for the religious person who sees no need for Jesus. Wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. And I don't care how many religious activities you have performed in your life, apart from the blood of Jesus, that's your future. Unless you repent. I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward as I conclude here. This is my call, friends, to the religious among the self-righteous, prideful, hypercritical, fault-finding religious person among us who sees no need for Jesus, no need for the cross. My call to you is not to repent of your unrighteousness, but to repent of your righteousness. Repent of the righteousness that you are clinging to for hope that God will someday welcome you into his kingdom. Here's what it says later in Romans 3. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. That's the gospel. That's the only hope for any of you to be welcomed into the kingdom, to know God personally, to know that your sins are forgiven, and to know that on that judgment day, God will pronounce you righteous in His sight and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But you've got to turn from your righteousness and receive the righteousness that Jesus Christ offers through His life, death, and resurrection. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become His righteousness. Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, hope for any.
who would come to him for forgiveness and mercy. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you do provide a way out for us, that we can escape your wrath and fury through simple faith in Jesus, the Savior and Messiah. Thank you for providing him for us. And Lord, fill our hearts with joy now as we sing about him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.